we can use the same level of thinking for our lives. What's the session cost for being inactive at a desk for eight hours? What's the session cost for sitting on a red eye after a marathon? What's the session cost for having a newborn baby not sleeping for a year? Suddenly, we can start to understand inputs and outputs. And what ends up happening as you age is that ultimately, a lot of the activities we got away with and paid low session costs with, nothing has changed. I'm going to go deadlift 315 every 30 seconds for 30 minutes. It's one of my favorite workouts. But the doing it when I'm 50 years old versus doing it when I'm 25 years old has very different impact on my body. I'm paying a much greater session cost now than I did before. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guests are Dr. Kelly Sturrett and Juliette Sturrett. Kelly is the co-author of the New York Times bestsellers, Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He consults with athletes and coaches from the NFL, NBA, NHL, and MLB, and he also consults with the U.S. Olympic team, the elite Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard forces, as well as corporations on employee health and well-being. Juliet is an entrepreneur, attorney, author, and podcaster. She was also a professional whitewater paddler, winning three world championships and five national titles. Together, Kelly and Juliet co-founded the Ready State and San Francisco CrossFit, and co-wrote the Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Deskbound. Today on the show, we discuss why prolonged sitting is so dangerous for your health, the hidden advantages of walking, and why you should count your steps every single day, what you can do to increase your longevity and optimize the aging process, how to reduce your risk of injury, and why stretching before a workout is ineffective, the best things you can do every single day to supercharge your range of motion and mobility, how to optimize your sleep position to help alleviate pain, what you should do if you're experiencing aches and pains, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Kelly Sturrett and Juliet Sturrett to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Kelly and Juliet, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Always good to talk about the problems that come along with torturing yourself, <laughs> needing to torture yourself. We're down. Speaking of torturing yourself, there's been a lot of talk over the last few years that sitting is the new smoking. Um, what's your take on that? Well, I think we're, uh, we've are we been trying to go around the world saying, hey, look, sitting is actually not bad. We don't love, you know, we, we appreciate that that's a catchy phrase, but ultimately our view is that sitting in and of itself is not bad and standing is not good and standing is not bad. Um, but really ultimately the goal is to move more. And so what we aren't fans of is marathon bouts of sitting without any movement, which actually, you know, people do find themselves doing at work and playing video games and so forth. So, you know, we really try to frame it as the goal is to move a lot. You know, human beings need to move. The brain and body needs to move a lot throughout the day. And so, you know, ultimately those sitting's not bad. We love sitting. Let's reframe that. So James Levine, who is a obesity researcher from the Mayo Clinic, coined that term. And imagine you're looking at public health problems across the United States. And you're like, wow, if we could just get people to quit smoking, we'd kill, we'd stop a lot of heart disease. We'd stop a lot of emphysema. There's just a lot of downstream effects, right? That are negative, secondhand smoke development, et cetera. So what he said was, holy moly, we're seeing this obesity crisis and it may be multifactorial, but for sure what we're seeing is inactivity. 
And so when someone describes sedentary behavior, it's nice to actually have a definition. Harvard defines it as falling below one and a half metabolic equivalents of activity. So if you've ever been on an old Stairmaster from like the 80s, you're like, what is a Met? I don't know, but I'm crushing the Mets right now, right? 9.2 Met. That's a, like a unit of measure, like an erg or a watt. Now we just basically all use watts. But when you sit down, you fall below one and a half metabolic equivalents. And what we're trying to do is get people above that magic 1.5 and actually try to limit the total time at 1.5 and below to six hours a day. That's the technical term. Again, you know, just telling people to, you know, don't sit or move more, that doesn't work as well as saying, hey, here's an objective measure. Let's see if we can get you to start to be paying attention to these minimums. So as Juliet said, it's not sitting as bad. It's just that prolonged sitting and spending a lot of time below one and a half metabolic equivalents unequivocally starts to mess with your ability to have your body function the way it should. And just looking at, you know, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, the whole thing starts to get a little wonky. Then we start layering on complex solutions to a problem that doesn't need a complex solution. What we need is, hey, let's get you not sitting on your butt still for six hours a day. And that's total. That's sitting on the TV, that's, you know, driving in your car, that's sitting at the work. What we see is that people don't realize that all of it aggregates into a ton of inactivity. And that's not how the body or the brain are supposed to work. And speaking of inactivity, um, I think you hear, you also hear a lot, like people just need to move more. You just need to move your body more. You need to get in more steps. What have you two found to be some of the most effective ways to, to move more throughout the day? And then also like, what is a good like metric that people should aim for as, as far as how much they move? Well, so I think Kelly uh, touched on this a little bit a little bit before I answer your actual question, but he mentioned the phrase non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and it's also known as NEAT, but those are all the kinds of movements that people do outside of formal exercise. So walking, gardening, cooking, you know, even fidgeting or perching at your desk, like Kelly right now is actually perching on a stool. So even that, because he's allowed to have some movement involved, you know, that would also be a form of non-exercise activity. But interestingly, what the research is starting to show is that that, you know, people who sit for an hour, who, who exercise for an hour a day, but then sit for the remainder of the day versus people who are in constant movement throughout the day, you know, those who are in movement often, you know, don't, don't struggle with things throughout their lives, like weight control. It turns out that maybe that's, you know, ultimately the difference in lifelong weight control is not you know, whether or not you exercise for an hour a day, but do you get enough total movement in your day? And so ultimately that could be the difference. But you know, the, the thing that we really use to track and what I find to be the most useful thing in the universe of all, you know, we now have so much access to so much technology and tracking. And I still think counting my steps is the most valuable tool I have. Um, you know, now we have, you know, like thousand dollar computers on our wrist that can tell us all sorts your of phone. your phone, all sorts of complicated information, but ultimately for me, the most important thing I track is still my steps. And we really recommend that people shoot to get between eight and 12,000 steps. And we think walking is the sort of easiest way for most people to get that additional non-exercise activity. And the reason we chose 8,000 in our book versus 10,000 is the research shows that, that the benefits you get from a lot of walking in terms of longevity and, you know, disease control really start to happen at about 8,000 steps. Now, which any, is a reasonable number. Which is a reasonable number for mo most people to get. Now, any additional movement you can get is great. You know, the more you do, the better. But what we've learned is that the average American gets about 3,000 steps a day and that actually cresting to 8,000 is possible. 
uh, you know, in a time crunch, busy life. And so, you know, we deploy a lot of different strategies to get steps in and Kelly can talk a little bit about those, but I can tell you that, you know, we definitely are not, you know, doing our normal one hour of exercise and then also, you know, spending an hour or two a day walking to accumulate those steps. We accumulate those steps in like five, 10, 20 minute increments. I think one of the things that, you know, Juliet is really passionate about is trying to make walking sexy for the first time. And I think those of us who like light, fancy ourselves exercises are like, walking's below me. If yeah, I'm, like why would I walk if I can run? That's right. And what we used to say was, remember that it was like, if you're not lifting, you should sit. And if you can be laying down, you should be laying down. If you're asleep, you should be asleep. So basically I need to be lifting or sleeping. <laughs> and we sort of, you know, didn't understand. And if you actually go back into the sort of athletic body of literature, you see that there is people, there are people like Louis Simmons, powerlifting legend, who had his athletes come back to the gym and push a sled. And what we're seeing there, those athletes have been power athletes, world champions. They were strong, but you have them come back and push a sled or drag a sled. And some of the benefit of walking that can help all of us are sort of hidden in the details. And one of those details is the sort of clearing of your lymphatic system. So your lymphatic system is your sewage system in your body. And you make between three and four liters of lymphatic fluid every day. So you have your circulatory system, and then you have the sewage system. And the sewage system handles all the old cells, all the broken down proteins, all the waste products of your body, all the normal waste sort of processes are dumped through your lymphatics, comes back up into your circulatory system, and then gets cleared by your kidneys and your liver. But if you don't pump your legs or move your arms, then it's really difficult for you to clear your lymphatic system. In fact, people even talk about the calves as like the second heart, that they're a huge driver of, of blood flow into the system and reclaiming sort of that lymph back into the circulatory system. It's one of the reasons that you get cankles if you fly on an airplane, you get those swollen ankles. That's the basically the sinks of your body backing up, and you're getting that congestion of those tissues. So imagine now from that just you, sitting there and not moving. Right. Yeah. So imagine that if you walk that eight thousand steps, one of the reasons that really helps is that it helps to just move the waste through your body, normal waste, decongest, you know, pump your lymphatics. And that is just one example of why you've got to walk more. And what I would say is, yes, it's really important for calorie control and knowing your neighbors and getting sun on your face and getting outside in your environment. There's some other reasons I can think of. But how about this? If you're training hard, we need you to go out and walk so you can actually <laughs> recover and adapt and actually move all that waste and broken down tissue out of your system. And oftentimes we see that this failure of evacuation of the waste products causes their own sets of problems. Like we see tissues start to become junky, tissues don't slide. So if you want to change everything from improving your ability to fall asleep, to having better tissue quality, to seeing your neighbors, to see your son, get some non-exercise activity, control your weight, maybe stop talking about it and get your 8,000 minimum. And then as far as like cadence and how to get the most out of walking, is there a certain like pace you recommend for people dependent on activity levels? Do you recommend people get keeping their heart rate in a certain zone? Like how can somebody determine whether or not they're walking at the proper speed for their fitness level. Well, what, what you've just done is what we've been doing to everyone in fitness forever. Here is something you should do. 
Now let's make it so complex that we freeze everyone. <laughs> and now we're like, I don't know, is it elite? How do I measure it? So what I'd say is before you start worrying about what kind of walking and what speed you're doing and all that, get your 8,000 steps. So get more steps in today than you did yesterday. Don't even worry about it, whatever it is, but just start there first. There are a lot of ways to pump this up and make it interesting, but understand that if you come to me as a physical therapist and you have back pain, the first thing I'm going to prescribe is walking. You're not getting enough non-exercise movement into your body. And I need you to accumulate fatigue so you can go to sleep. I need you to just move your system along and get loading in a safe way. One of the easiest ways to change how your brain is perceiving and, and rewiring, uh, setting up a parameter where your brain can have sort of better plas plastic features, so, and that means rewiring itself if you have chronic pain, is to walk briskly. And that means whatever brisk is for you. So just a quick walk where you turn up a little bit more, you know, the speed on your walking, you're going to see increased neuroplasticity. But don't be precious about it. As far as like, Okay, so I know that you're you don't want people to focus on like the, the cadence and the speed and like how necessarily to do it from a fitness component, but what about like posture while walking? Because I imagine that that's important because I know we're going to talk about back pain, hip pain, and stuff like that as the conversation progresses. Like, what is the proper walking posture? Well, I mean, I think Kelly might you know talk a little bit about the sort of reference foot position, but you know, I think what you what you've done here is cue Kelly up to talk about his favorite subject of all time, which is hip extension, <laughs> and something that he's obsessed with uh, on a daily basis. So let's hear it, Kills. Oh, let's talk. Let, let's talk about hip extension more. <laughs> Everyone wants to talk about <laughs> this. Hip is extension. what we talk about at the dinner table, so that's so, why it's a an ongoing joke. The thing, <laughs> I think, what frames it up really well is I think the way that Juliet and I talk and have come to think about all training or all experience is exposure is the first order of business. So instead of worrying about what walking we should do, let's get walking that we can see. If you come to me and we're like, hey, I want to squat. We're not going to do squat like things. We're going to squat today. You may squat very high. You might pause squat to a box. We may have you hold pink dumbbells, one pound dumbbells as you squat, but we're squatting today no matter what because instead of doing squat like things and waiting till all of those things are perfect before we go squat, we're going to start by introducing you to this movement, to the limits of your ability, your capacities, your range of motion, your skill, your pain, right? We're, we're squatting no matter what. You have back surgery, we're squatting today. You have knee surgery, we're squatting today. You know, two and a half years ago, I had my knee replaced after a really bad ski accident. I buffered it for as long as I could. And literally, the next day, I went out and did quarter squats, like quarter squats, tiny, tiny squats in ranges that I could control. And the idea here is the first order of business is to do the thing. So one of the things that we can begin to say is once you're walking, now we can start talking about, well, what are the components there? So we can make some easy principles, like first of all, can you breathe through your nose? That's automatically going to trigger better ventilation mechanics. And as you walk briskly, it's going to start to have you do things like have to expand your breath into your belly and your back just by breathing through your nose. We can say things like, hey, let's get your feet walking straight because a foot straight is a, a foot that's going to transfer better if you're going up hills. It's going to transfer better to sprinting. It's going to give you more balance options, right? So we can do those things. But as Juliet said, one of the things we've tried to do in Built to Move is create a whole line of reference vital signs, movement vital signs, physical behavioral vital signs. 
And it turns out that your ability to get into a lunge position is really the root shape of walking or running or sprinting, which is a foundational human experience. So imagine my disdain when people are like, hey, I want to be a better runner or walker. And I'm like, well, you can't even extend your hip at all. Your knee comes behind you a little bit and you're stiff and your butt can't squeeze and you can't basically do a big lunge position. So that lunge shape, which is one of our archetypes, which we call the couch test, this lunge shape, is the root shape. The first order of business is to get you walking, then we can start talking about all the other components, strong feet, better breathing, hip extension, et cetera, to improve that. Well, and back to your original question about, you know, sitting is the new smoking and all the sitting we're doing. I mean, you know, the reason that people can't put their knee behind their butt is because they spend most of their day practicing the opposite position. Squatting. <laughs> and sitting in a chair in a squatting position, right? And so I think that's part of the reason why Kelly is so obsessed with it is, you know, yes, that is a downstream impact of all the sitting we're doing is that people really are missing hip extension and there are some physical consequences of that. And we shouldn't wait around till we have pain. I think that's one of the things that we're losing our minds about is what we've told people is all movement is good. We're exercise optimists. Just get out there and do it. And yet we want people to understand that your body is supposed to do some things. You're supposed to be able to put your hip behind you in hip extension. You're supposed to be able to squat all the way down. You should put your arms over your head. If you struggle with those things, you're not a bad person. It's like suddenly realizing your blood pressure is out of control. And you're like, whoa, I had no idea. I feel fine. But what we know in the long haul, that's going to sort of impart some kind of physiologic cost. And not having access to your native, God-given, evolutionary, biological range of motion is one of the easiest things you can do to make yourself feel better and improve your movement choice and movement options. But until someone points out to you that, you know, hey, I noticed that every time we eat, you have to use these really long forks because your elbows don't bend. You're like, that's so weird. My forks have been getting longer and longer. Why do I use these really three foot long forks to eat dinner? I'm like, I don't know. Why don't you just bend your elbow? But if your elbows don't bend, you're like, wow, I had no idea. That's a ridiculous example that I've never used before until just now. <laughs> but that's what's happening with people's ankles and hips. But the fact is you don't have any pain in those areas. So how would you know that you didn't have range of motion until someone pointed out that, hey, your pain and lack of capacity and inability to move quickly and freely, those things are also associated with how well you move. That's why we can't just be movement optimists. Yes, the first order of business is to is to move. The second order of business is to restore what it is your body is supposed to do. That's why you brush and floss every night. And I think that, like like you said, like it's it's really sad that a lot of people, they don't make a change until the alarm goes off. And Oh, that's humans. With and with an ankle and like hip tightness, you really don't feel it, right? But you know, the the, the main thing we, we normally feel is like lower back pain. If we've been sitting on a plane for a while, if we've that's been right. like sitting in a chair, we get up like, oh, my back's stiff. What are the signs that somebody has tight hips so they can understand that it's time to make a change? I mean, low back pain would be a big one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, we'll start with low back pain. You know what's what's interesting is. We want people to have a different relationship with what pain means to their body. So this is one of our missions in the book is sort of reimagine pain. So if you have a fever, nausea, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, you know, something else suspicious is going on, you talk to your doctor, fever, right, above 104, you're like, you're going to get help. 
If you step off a curb and there's a bone sticking out of your leg, you're like, okay, I broke my ankle, right? Besides pathology and clear injury, we are like, I don't know what's wrong with my back. Maybe it's rabies. Maybe I have gonorrhea. I don't know. We start Googling it. You see, like, I must have herniated 17 discs when I picked up this toothbrush today. And what we've done is basically given people no cues about understanding pain except trauma and tissue damage. Pain does not mean that. Again, I gave you a couple cases of red flags. Go get some help. But we want you to understand that pain is not damage. Pain is a request for change. And when something aches or something is sore or something's getting, it's your brain getting your attention, asking you for input or for a different behavior. It's a really cool check engine light. And we can actually use it that way. We can say, hey, I went for this walk and now my knees are a little sore. Nothing's wrong with my knees. My brain is just saying, hey, there's something going on with this system. We need you to pay attention. What's cool is that we can use pain in the same way we use wattage or poundage. We can use it as sort of a real time, say, hey, I need to pay attention to that. And which means that I can sort of buffer my normal human stuff where I'm dealing and I'm managing my family and I'm taking care of a sick person and doing good, getting good at my job. And then all of a sudden my back is sore. I don't need to freak out. I just need to be like, oh, that means I should do X. That means maybe I look at my hip range of motion. Maybe I have to certainly say, hey, well, what are the things that make my brain twitchy? Poor nutrition, poor sleep, poor inactivity, being stressed, drinking a ton of alcohol, right? All of those things can contribute to making me more sensitive. And they also contribute, by the way, to making you a worse athlete. So all of a sudden we can say, oh, we can use all these high performance tools to help the rest of us manage the stresses of our life, including you know, being on an airplane. If you're going to be on an airplane, you know your back's going to hurt. You know what we're going to prescribe for you when you get to your destination? Walking. So would you say that walking is the the antidote to like tight hips or would you recommend that people just start with some basic stretches? I mean, I, I would say walking is definitely part of that. And, you know, but we would also, I, I would say we would say start with some basic, a basic mobility practice. But, you know, the way that I like to think about it is that people who are or aren't in pain want to have as much movement capacity as they can. And I like to think about that as like a wide, like hospital hallway. Like if your, if your hallway is wide and wide open, it means you have all the movement capacity you want. You can do whatever it is you want with your body when you want, whether that's play tennis or lift weights or play with your grandchildren. Pickleball. Or Pickleball. Like you have this wide hallway of movement capacity. But if you don't take care of your soft tissue in the form of some mobilizations or stretching, over time, that hallway is going to start to constrict and your movement choice is going to get very limited. And you might also be suffering from some aches and pains, many of which you may be able to solve on your own on your living room floor. And, you know, I will say I fall into the same camp as you. We talked about this in the pre-roll a little bit. I don't love stretching. I don't love mobilizing. I'm kind of a naturally stiff. Too bad you married me. I know. I'm, I'm a stiff. I'm a stiff person. It's uncomfortable for me. You know, I struggle to do it. I, I just want to 
like smash myself at the gym and bleed through my eyes and breathe hard and lift heavy weights. And like, you know, that, that's sort of what I get excited about. I don't love, you know, having to spend the time to do this, but what I've learned over the years is it's, it's definitely sort of a use it or lose it. And I am very aware, especially as I just turned 50 this year, that I want to keep that movement hallway as wide open as possible so that I can keep doing what I need to do. And so in order to do that, I do need to spend 10 or 15 minutes a day, which I do on my living room floor while I'm watching Netflix, putting a little input into my body in the form of stretching, mobilization, soft tissue work with a foam roller or a ball. And I'll say that because I'm still in my 40s. By the way, he's 49 for like three more months <laughs> as an aside, but he's really loving this period of our marriage where I'm, th- you know. I just scored a point in the game where I get to be 40 <laughs> and Juliet is basically 59. <laughs> you know, I think J-Star brings up a really good point is that oftentimes for us, we were able to get away with murder and still be really good. I remember competing at the world championships and having margaritas the night before and just, you know I mean? Like we, we could do whatever we wanted. You cut my hand off and it would grow back. And, you know, nutrition mattered less, sleep mattered less. Of course it mattered. We were, we left capacity on the table and volume on the table. What we're always doing with people when we work with teams and forces and, and organizations is we're always trying to reduce what we call session cost, which is an easy way of thinking about sort of training load. So whatever training you're doing, we can sort of measure how rigorous that was on your body. The next day, we could look at central nervous system readiness. We could look at force generation. We could look at speed, resting heart rate. Those are all impacts of something we call session cost. And one of the things we're trying to do with our elite athletes is reduce session cost. We know that the goal is stimulus and adaptation. Can I adapt to the stimulus? But a lot of the behaviors we try to engage in allow all of our athletes to handle higher session cost training sessions. And that means that the next day they can be fresher, which means they can work harder. So what we know is whoever works the hardest over long periods of time wins. But you, it's not just about work. It's about how can you manage all of that stress and adaptation. Well, we can use the same level of thinking for our lives. What's the session cost for being inactive at a desk for eight hours? What's the session cost for sitting on a a red eye after a marathon? What's the session cost for having a newborn baby not sleeping for a year? Suddenly, we can start to understand inputs and outputs. And what ends up happening as you age is that ultimately, a lot of the activities we got away with and paid low session costs with, nothing has changed. I'm going to go deadlift 315 every 30 seconds for 30 minutes. It's one of my favorite workouts. But doing it when I'm 50 years old versus doing it when I'm 25 years old has very different impact on my body. And I'm paying a much greater session cost now than I did before. So as we help people sort this out, the first order of business is saying, hey, look, it doesn't matter if it's sports or non-sports. We want to look at the inputs and outputs of your life and your day as ultimately helping you to reduce those session costs. As you get older, you're going to have to start paying attention because your tissues are changing, your brain is changing, your environment is changing. And it's easy to not have a set of minimums 
or a set of vital signs to come back to. In fact, those do- things don't exist. They haven't existed until April 4th when, you know, Built to Move came out. We created vital signs for your shoulders, vital signs for your hips, vital signs for your body, so that you can now have a reference language that you can come back to throughout the course of your lifespan and say, hey, I'm a little bit behind this because something happened, or I've never paid attention to this, I didn't realize it was important, or hey, I'm doing just fine. Kelly, I know like a couple of the um, like lower body mobility exercises that you you've talked about for years have been like something like the couch stretch or the deep squat. Um, would there be any specific um, flexibility or mobility exercises that maybe somebody could go to either on your YouTube channel, either on your YouTube channel or just by searching them that you would recommend that people do on a daily basis? You said Kelly at the beginning of that question. We're kidding because we all, you know, the joke (laughs) is all. Okay, so yeah, I'm sorry. I know he was queuing me up to tell this joke. So, so uh, the reason that we were laughing a little bit is that you know over the years we've had a lot of people approach Kelly and be like, "Hey, Kelly, what if I just had time to do one mobilization for the rest of my life?" (laughs) I'm like, which body part do you not want to use? And you know, Kelly's head starts twitching to the side, and he says exactly that. Like, well, you know, do you just want to never use your shoulder again? You know, because so it's it's really hard for him to, to say that, um, you know, I'll say for me, one of the most important go-tos, um, especially because I am stiff and my hips tend to be super stiff is the couch stretch. I mean, that's, that's for me like a non-negotiable. I have to do that four or five times a week. And, you know, the way I fit it into my life is I do a couch stretch at the end of all my workouts for, I do three minutes aside at the end of my workouts, but you know, what would you add to that? Or you can't because no body part is Or give me an upper, or give me an upper body one then. That way we can do the whole body. (laughs) Well, what um, if you're going to search on the YouTube, you should look at my morning routine. We even had a blog post on it. And we have something called the morning spin-up. And it's a little 10-minute routine. It's a hip spin-up and um, was based originally on something we called squat prep. But ultimately, I was thinking, what is the one behavior we could get everyone doing every day that touched a lot of the sort of important shapes of your lower body, that touched your fascia, made your muscles work, touched the end range of your joints of your hips and ankles and knees. And imagine like a modern sun salutation, but stripped out of all the yoga and you'll see it in the language of like, oh, I understand this is a lunge. These are hamstrings. It's not in Sanskrit. You're like, oh, I see this would get me better at squatting. Um, We also have something we call the shoulder spin-up, which would be if I was just wanting to touch all the shapes of my shoulder and just remind my brain it's okay to have position there, and I can do it at my home, what we find is if we prescribe it for all of our athletes, whether you're an elite surfer, you're about to go knock down a door and, you know, in a sketchy, austere place, you're a, you know, world champion, we want you to do this thing at home in the morning before you leave the house. And what we find is that it's a lot easier to get your body spun up and ready to go when it's time to go. So if you only have an hour to run at lunch or a half hour, you've already touched these shapes, you've already reminded your brain. And the first thing that we do is say, hey, let's go ahead and hit these shapes and touch them. So they're in your repertoire, they're in your lexicon. But as Juliet hinted at earlier, probably the single greatest thing you can do tonight starting is sit on the ground for 30 minutes while you're watching TV and get into as many weird positions as you can on the ground. Sit side saddle, sit 90-90, long sit, kneel, and just touching some of those end range positions for static holds while you're watching TV, you're gonna realize you can accumulate a ton of sneaky hip range of motion without any targeting. 
comma plus couch stretch. Well, and I would slightly disagree with Kelly about the morning spin of only um, being appropriate for the morning. I mean, that's one of those areas mm. where we really tell people not to be precious. I mean, everybody's schedules are different and training times and, you know, times when they have time to just do anything in, in terms of care and feeding of their body, mobilization, soft tissue practice, morning spin up, any spin up. So, I mean, our point of view is really, you know, anytime you can you know, take a moment to do some care and feeding of your body is a good time. So if you can do the morning spin up in the morning, great, but don't not do it because the only time you can do it is at 8 PM at night. That's right. And it's totally appropriate then too. And that's a really good point is that, you know, ultimately what we can say is your body should have access. You know, the original idea of becoming a supple leopard was that a leopard can attack and defend at full physical capacity in an instant. You don't have to like activate your glutes and do some elaborate warm-up routines. It's like the, the leopard's like- Do this with the band. Kumite. Yeah. Le yeah. Leopard's ready to touch gloves, <laughs> touch hands, and fight. And um, I want people to have access to their range of motion. In fact, we're so obsessed with this range of motion idea that we think that you shouldn't have to stretch or access your range of motion. You should have it all the time. And if you don't, you should be noodling on it so you can- actually do what you're supposed to do in a warm-up. Warm-ups are not time to reclaim your range of motion. That, that's going to happen for sure. That's typical. But warm-ups are supposed to be shifting your blood from your body to your, you know, your, your organs out to your muscles. It's supposed to, you know, raise your core temperature. You're supposed to practice and, you know, increase your nervous system arousal. Like it's never like, oh, I, my knees don't bend. I should guess I should do that before I work out. So ultimately, Range of motion is also something that never has to change in your whole life. As you get older, you don't have to sacrifice being able to get up and down off the ground or putting your arms over your head. And the only reason those things become difficult for us is we pay a session cost and we never realize we're paying that session cost until we go to yoga and we can't do downward dog or you can't hang from a pull-up bar or something like that. So, you know, ultimately how you want to skin that cat entirely up to you. Do I think you should be doing some hanging for your upper body? Probably every day would be great. But if you can't do that, how are you going to put your arms over your head today? Spin up at least. And so speaking of like the typical gym warm-up routine, you'll see a lot of people in the gym. They'll get to the gym. They'll reach down. They'll touch their toes. They'll bring their arm across their body. That's right. That's right. Across, <laughs> nailed it. Yeah. And then they get going. Let's go. And a lot of people think that that's like static stretching before you work out is, is the way to go. And I know you don't want to necessarily like demonize certain modalities of, of stretching and routines for people, but from a, from a scientific perspective, um, do you think that doing that stuff is causing more harm than good? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Just Thrive. I have covered the topic of gut health extensively on the show and why it is so important to have a healthy microbiome. 80 to 90% of Americans suffer from some type of gut issue and 70 to 80% of your immune system is in the gut. And while cleaning up your diet and managing your stress should be at the foundation of addressing your gut health, a probiotic can certainly be very beneficial. When buying a probiotic, you want to be sure that you get one that actually works and delivers on their promises. Research shows that 99.9% .9 of them die in your stomach acid before they reach your gut. That's where Just Thrive Probiotics stands out from the crowd. Their proprietary strains have been third-party clinically tested and proven to arrive 100% alive in your gut, unlike other probiotics that die on the way. But that's not all. Their probiotics have more clinical research than any other products on the market and are proven to work. 
So if you are tired of struggling with gut issues like gas, bloating, and indigestion, look no further than Just Thrive Probiotics. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off your first 90-day bottle of Just Thrive Probiotic. So visit JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Again, it's JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Now back to the show. No, I think it's just not helping. If you and I were going to get into a fight, would you lay on the ground? Get ready. I'm dancing would you, around. Would I'm you foam ready. roll your calves before you got into a fight with Kelly? Like, would that be your, your go-to? Meanwhile, I'm swinging my arms around, getting my heart rate up, jumping, like opening up you my know, hips. Like one of the things that we're obsessed with from a warm-up <laughs> You're standpoint. You're laying on the ground. I'm going to kill you. We have, we're obsessed with jump roping and think it's the greatest warm up of all time for basically all things, right? I mean, you get some shoulder, you get some shoulder action, you're jumping, you, you know, you sweat a little bit, you get your heart rate up. Like, like, you know, we're just for, and and also, you know, we do a lot of work with youth athletes and find that they are horrible at warming up. I mean, literally our kids like dive in the pool and they're like swim 5,000 meters, right? Zero warm up is often happening in, in youth sports and youth athletics. And one of the easiest ways and simplest ways to warm up is actually just spend a little time. I'm jump roping. So we're such fans of jump roping. That's really, it's a really excellent point. Um, you know, what we want to do is not waste our time. So one of the things that, you know, Juliet and I have had a very, been very fortunate about is we've seen a lot of process in the last 20 years. We've gotten access to, you know, Olympic halls and national teams and sports teams and universities. We just get to see everything. And what we're trying to do is get people in and going as quickly as possible. And one of the things that we've seen is that we've made warm-ups very, very precious. Like I do this 10 minutes of cardio and then I do my breath work and then I activate my calves and then I, and I'm suddenly I'm like, dude, we're 30 minutes in, we need to go. And we feel like part of what we're trying to do is simplify. So if the thing you're trying to do at the gym is get stronger, work on skills, right? Become more powerful, work on your conditioning, let's do that. How can we get into that more quickly? And more importantly, how can we prepare your body for that? So one of the things we did, for example, is that we became very fanatical about trying to remove some of the soft tissue work and put it towards the end of the day when you're at home. So instead of, you know, the caveat there is if something hurts and you're going to train today, let's see if we can make it feel better before you train. Like that's reasonable, right? So a quick foam roll on one leg that feels tight or you got a shoulder that's achy, hit it with a percussion instrument, warm up, mobilize. Let's get you into the thing. You know, so I would much rather have you under a bar and taking lots of warm-up sets and then jumping rope or playing in between so that we're getting to the thing. What we're trying to do is respect and say, what are the things that you need to get done in the gym environment? And then what other things can we spread out across the scope of your 24-hour day? So imagine a time where, let's just say you, you had 10 minutes in the morning, you opened up your hips. And then you walked around a bunch during the day. You did our, our hip spin up. You walked around a bunch during the day. You didn't sit. And then you snuck into the gym. You'd be pretty quick able to get under the barbell fast and get your heart rate up. And then you, you went ahead and ate something afterwards. You kept moving. You didn't sit down. And in the evening, you were like, well, my quads are a little sore. So maybe I mobilized my quads. So at the course of the day, we have a ton of input. And we didn't try to cram 300 things into that magical hour and the heroic moment of you going to the gym. I want you to go to the gym and actually do gym shit. I don't want you to do all these other self-care things. You brought up the foam roller. Um, I know that's, that's a great tool for people to have at their homes. Like, What else would you recommend if somebody were to buy something to keep at their home to, to help? What, what other tool would they potentially need for some of these 
mobility drills that they might have to do. I mean, I would add a lacrosse ball mostly because it's cheap. It's $2.99 on Amazon, super accessible. Anybody can get one. You can get it at any local sporting goods store and it's a really effective tool. Ball and a roller for sure. A ball and a roller would be the two, the two things, you know, the, the other thing that, that I would add is like a larger ball, like a volleyball or, um, our friend Jill Miller makes this thing called the Corrigus ball and you can actually lay on it on your stomach and it deflates you. It's great to travel with. So, I mean, that would be sort of the other thing I would have, you know, the, the thing too, we talked earlier about, you know, it's, it's not about whether we should do the, these things, but how do we fit them into our lives? I mean, we literally have a basket full of random tools that we've, you know, a, we make some of them. We've accumulated people have sent us tools. They're sitting right next to our couch because we want to make it as simple as possible and remove any barrier to doing this mobility work as possible. So, you know, we make it a point of sitting on the floor for 30 minutes while we watch TV and we look to our right and we're like, Oh, Hey, there's a basket of tools. Maybe I should foam roll my calf as well while I'm already sitting here on the ground. So we really try to keep the tools like right there and accessible. And And let me be clear. We live in a cool mid-century modern house. You don't have to make your house look like Jimboree. It doesn't have to be ugly. Yeah. We have our a really friend, cool like square basket. And <laughs> Our friend know. Chris Duffin makes this thing called the boomstick. Oh, I've had that thing used on me. It's, oh. Oh, yes, of course. So it's a 45 pound. Is that the pain pill? Pain pill. No, I think the pain pill is a small what about one. The, yeah. What about the ex-wife? There's an ex-wife too, right? That's yeah. Donnie Thompson. That, <laughs> that thing belongs in the garage. That's very, it's a huge tube that weighs like upwards yeah. of 100 to 200 pounds. But th- this <laughs> object that I'm talking about, by Kabuki strength is this beautiful machined, it looks like a long bullet and it's like an object of art and it just sits under our coffee table and people are like, what is that? I'm like, put it on your quads and figure out. And it is so easy to lay on the ground and take this 45 pound object and then just mobilize yourself. Do long static holds, isometrics, you know, shutdowns. You can, it has a little neural, you can grip your skin. But what you'll see is, as Juliet hinted at, is setting up the conditions where you don't have to make another choice or you don't have to summon the willpower. Like literally, I was already sitting on the ground and my my daughter was on the, we were watching, I don't know what we were watching yesterday, and my daughter was sitting at the other end of the couch and I was like, pass me the pain, the boomstick or the pain pill, whatever, whichever one it was. And she's like, can you get it yourself? I'm like, nope, I'm already here. That was already too much for me to reach over and I needed a Sherpa to bring it to me. And that really is the allegory for how difficult it is to summon willpower is that I didn't want to march over for five feet to bring this thing over. I wanted my daughter to bring it to me. And if we can think of making these behaviors that effortless and that frictionless, we see a lot better adherence and it makes it a lot easier for you to do the right thing or a better thing for your body without having to get in the car and drive to the stretching lab. And like, it's just it, the more steps between you and getting something done, the less likely you are to do that thing. And then we've touched on obviously how to prevent injury. We've touched on how to prevent injury and how to help injuries with, with certain exercises, certain mobility drills, certain habits. Um, I know a lot of people are concerned with getting injured when they're actually physically exercising. Um, other than um, you know keeping things flexible, is there is there certain cues that people should pay attention to, um, whether it be embracing their core, proper posture? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Sleep. <laughs> so you know, I think one of the things that it's difficult for us to say because I don't have all the I don't have all the data, I don't have all the information about you, what you're doing, your history, your warm-up, right? There's a lot of things going there in terms of injury prevention. 
what we can say unequivocally is, well, we can help your brain be a lot less twitchy about and sensitive to perceiving threat from your body. And you can do that with being well hydrated, getting enough protein and micronutrients like fiber and, and uh, you know, all the things that come with fruits and vegetables. Um, it really being useful having slept. We know that as soon as you put kids in high school and finals, their injury rates start to go through the roof, right? So there's a whole lot of things you can do in terms of your behaviors that have been demonstrated to reduce all injury risk. Ultimately, that's the most important thing and making sure that your tissues are ready to go when it's time to go. Yeah. And I think the the point that I want to add there, I mean, obviously, you know, while you're in your training session, you want to focus on technique and ideally have good coaching around you. Um, but I, I think the point Kelly's making is that, you know, one of the reasons we wrote this book is actually to support coaches because we owned a commercial gym for so many years. And what we saw was our coaches would be ready for their clients to come in with this like amazing yes. program planned out. They're ready to go. And their client would show up grossly ill-prepared for their workout session. And, you know, they hadn't slept, they hadn't eaten a vegetable, they'd only had coffee, they'd traveled, they had a baby, they hadn't done any soft tissue work, they hadn't moved their bodies, and then they'd been sitting for the prior 12 hours before their training session. And we saw so many times our coaches had to completely revamp their, their client's entire program because the person that came in the door was not ready to train at all, and probably in that case, more prone to injury. And so, you know, what I would say is, yes, of course, the in-session the in-session considerations are very important, but one of the reasons we wrote this book is we want to give a tool to coaches to say, Hey client, you know, what I want to do when you're here is work on your, you know, cardiovascular health and your strength and your technique and agility and all the other things that we train for. But here's this book and you need to do these things for the other 23 hours of the day so that when you come back for your session with me tomorrow, you're actually going to be prepared to train. Have a better adaptation and response. And have a better adaptation in response to the training we are doing. And so, man, I mean, there's so many things. I, I think maybe, you know, someone who would ask that question about like, how can I avoid injury during my training session may not be thinking that there are 75 things they could be doing outside of their training session in the other 23 hours of the day that are probably going to make the biggest difference there. And let me just reframe for everyone. The gym is the safest place there is. We can control everything in the gym. We can control depth and speed and tempo and control and the number of range of motion and how the weight moves. Go ahead and do a sport and you open yourself up to immense, immense kind of dangers. How Soccer for middle-aged men, dude, you're going to die. <laughs> Something's going to explode. You're going to rip your calf off. You're going to get slide tackled. So, I mean, what I want people to understand is the gym is the place for us really to understand what's going on underneath. And if you ignore those things, ignore them at your peril. If you are squatting and having a hard time breaking parallel, it doesn't mean we're not going to squat. But it means we're going to become curious because what we have always said is that the stimulus for adaptation, exercise, training, is also the diagnostic tool. And one of the things that we saw was that people had basically, I did the FMS and I put it in a drawer. I'm like, well, how did it affect your training? What did you do to improve those positions? Nothing. It was a third-party validation snapshot of how effective your training was. What we've done with in Supple Leopard, in the app, the Ready State app, et cetera, is even in our sort of formal level two coursework, we've tried to give people clear assessments of what complete range of motion is. 
And what's happened is that we've gone in and fetishized and loved on wattage and pounds and kilos and did the classic thing. As long as you went faster today and were one kilo heavier, you know, on the bar, you've shown progress, negating your range of motion, negating your technique. As long as you moved the, you know, the bag of sand, another foot, you were a better athlete. And certainly we need to move the bag of sand, but also it tells us a lot about what's going on. So the last 10 years for us have been about trying to connect position, quality, technique. That's expression of range of motion. That's what technique is with what we're doing in the gym. So if your shoulder is sore after a bench press session, we want to ask, what's going on there? Did you have native range of motion? Were those tissues stiff? Were you able to handle that volume? Did your elbow start flaring as you got to 100 kilos and you started you know, seeing big, gross deviations in your technique? Well, that's a problem. So ultimately, we want people to check their egos. We still want to do heavy barbell training, not dance around with pink dumbbells and bosa balls. It's still hard training, but we need to understand that really what we're doing is challenging our ability to express shapes and positions in the gym. That's what training is. How can somebody tell the difference um, between like, if there's somebody who's getting older and obviously things break down more when you get older, how can somebody know it's like a- They don't have to, but they tend to. So how can somebody, um, how can somebody tell the difference uh, whether or not it's just like an age related thing uh, versus they actually have some sort of uh, mobility or flexibility issue? Well, I mean, as Kelly said earlier, uh, unlike our muscle mass and, you know, many of the other features of aging, your range of motion actually doesn't have to change as you get older. I'm 50 and, so, and I can still do the splits. Yeah. Kelly's 50. I mean, I can't do the splits, but I, I think there, you know, if, if I were an aging athlete, which I am, I would start with the tests we have in built to move and just get a baseline about where my body is from a mobility standpoint and a range of motion standpoint. And then I would keep an eye on those things. I would test and retest, you know, four or five times a year and see where I am and put some attention on the parts of my body that weren't functioning that well. And from a tactical perspective, one of the things that we can always do with athletes who are not in their 20s is that we slow down. So you, we have these things called tempo movements where you have to do slow eccentrics and demonstrate control. That's really, and we do isometrics. So in our language, we have this kind of categorizing of systems of, of thinking about movements. And the safest are movements that look like traditional powerlifting movements or traditional strength movements in the gym. Strict push-up, strict pull-up, bench press, deadlift, squat. And what we find is in those movements, we have a chance to get really organized, get into our best positions available to us, and move to a position where we still have control, we still have agency, we still have coordination and organization, right? And then we can move back. And then what we can do is, hey, I have some patina, I have some wear and tear. Well, it's fine. We're just going to slow you down. What you'll see is that there are a lot of people. I just saw this guy named Rudy who works for um, Kabuki. He just deadlifted 524 for a double at age 75. So every year since for his whole life, since he could do it, he's deadlifted over 500 pounds. So watching a 75-year-old you know, double 524 tells me that that movement is exactly what I'm talking about. Limited range of motion, can get really organized, and we can handle those loads. What you don't see Rudy doing at 75 is full snatches, where he's got to move fast and have really excellent positions to be able to manage those loads. 
what ends up happening is that is end up those sort of high speed, high load. You can probably strict press your whole life, but your push jerks are probably going to start to go away. And that doesn't have to happen. But what we're seeing is that people, as they age, we lose our range of motion. We don't have to, but our tissues are less likely to handle those big, dynamic, flexible speed loads. And if we just slow down, there's no reason we can't continue to do real strength training our whole lives. One of the things that I think can limit people when they get older that I've just experienced in my career as a trainer is when somebody tears their ACL, their MCL, they tear their rotator cuff, and they'll be like, I don't want to squat because it hurts my knee. You know, I just had surgery yeah. or <laughs> I can't barbell bench because I just had rotator cuff surgery and I can't externally rotate my shoulder. Are, are your, is your thought that somebody should be able to work through that to get back to a place where they can do traditional barbell squat, barbell bench, or do you believe in that type of situation? Do you want to take a, Do you want to answer that for me, Jay? No, you take it. I mean, yes, that is the goal. I'm going to answer. Are you guys that, about to crush that, me yes, right now? <laughs> no, no. I think what really is great is that you're bringing up this thing where we said, "Hey, you got injured for some reason. It happens. You, you know, like you slipped, you got into a fight, you crashed. Like that happens. What you're coming up with is really the thing that Juliet and I have been working on for 20 years. Is that we have asked trainers and coaches to stand in the gap and rehab people after incomplete rehabilitative process. If someone goes through an ACL repair and is afraid to bend their leg or squat past 90, what you see is that is, pardon my friends, really shitty rehab. That is an incomplete rehab post-surgical experience. And what do you mean you're afraid? You just, we just have that thing repaired. In fact, what I would say is this is the safest thing you can do. We can control your range of motion. We can floor press. You know, so people being afraid under the barbell is because they don't have a context to understand what is complete range of motion. When the physical therapist kicks them out of rehab, they are far away from yeah, healing. Yeah, from full function. So you what you yeah. saw your physical therapist twice a week for what six weeks, and then you just thought you'd rehab your knee on your own for the and just hope. What ended up happening was that knee became not painful, and you ran out of visits. And that physical therapy office with that carpet and hung ceiling turned out to be a poor approximation of what it looked like to get back in the ring, back on the bike, fight, squat. They didn't even have a squat rack there. So how did you expect that person to come back? They were doing low-level bullsh exercises that were just babysitting the, the, the tissues until they could get discharged and become your problem. So what I think ultimately, yes, people should be able to easily get back to these weight things. We may have to control some range depth eventually or initially, but not, not be able to access those things. That's crazy town. You know, one of the things we did at our gym is we had this great sort of group of um, physical therapist coaches, and it was actually a great business model for us at our gym because, you know, what Kelly's pointing to is that, you know, there's this, most physical therapists can do a great job in that short-term acute rehab period post-surgery, but then people are just discharged and they're nowhere near full function and nowhere near being able to do all the things they want to do. And so we really found that this combo coach physical therapist, or I think any really competent personal trainer or coach could fill that gap for most people that are trying to get back to full function from surgery and that there's no reason. And we saw it, you know, a thousand times at our gym where we would get people at that exact point where they're post-surgical, but they're no longer acute and they were able to get back to full function. So it's totally possible. Yeah. I love how you brought that up because there's definitely been plenty of times in my career where that example that you just laid out has, has happened where people had surgery, they come to me and they're like, Hey, I can't squat. Um, 
I can't deadlift. I can't. I'm never going to squat or deadlift ever again. Yeah. And then like, you know, listening to you over the years, it's really changed my mind that the way to, to heal an injury isn't to move away from the movement. It's to move towards the movement, right? It's not to stop doing that exercise. It's to begin to figure out a way to do it in a healthy yeah. way. And we want to, we tend, Juliet and I tend to bias the tools that we choose towards things that be, can be regressed and progressed. So rehab is, has a ton of, we'll call skill transfer exercises, corrective exercise, movements, ways of babysitting or trying to have an adaptation while something is healing. But those things are all cul-de-sacs. They're all dead ends. Ultimately, they can't be progressed. So I'm going to ask you a question here, and you better know the answer. Are you ready? I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> what is the world no record pressure. slant board squat? You know why you don't see it? Because it doesn't exist. Because no one squats heavy on a slant board because you can't. So your knees shear apart. That's why you don't see people doing 500-pound back squats on a slant board. So what ends up happening is that we say, hey, that slant board is a really useful tool to restore people's squatting moments because it takes the hips out of it because your torso is so upright. It allows you to not even have to use your ankle dorsiflexion at all. It's so easy. It's a great tool, but eventually you're going to have to get rid of the slant board. Otherwise, you're going to have to walk around in stiletto heels the rest of your life and do all your movements in high heel shoes. So we tend to, again, choose things that pre regress and progress. And squatting is one of those things because we what people say is, hey, I'm a really, I'm afraid. I haven't done that. So we're like, here's a sandbag. Here's something to hold on to. We're going to goblet squat to a high box and we're going to progress that. And then we're going to get it lower and lower. And then we're just going to change where the weight is. Now it's on your back. Now it's in your hands. Now it's at your chest. And ultimately, the goal of training, of all good training, is not just to get bigger muscles and be shredded. That's a nice goal, but it's not the goal. It's to restore what the body should be able to do so that the person can go out into the world and utilize that training. And what a failure of physical therapy not to return people to function because we ran out of visits, right? Like you're not <laughs> ready to play soccer after three months. Are you kidding me? Where, where's the gap in there? And the trainer has been disempowered to be able to say, hey, you can't, you don't have full hip extension. You're really sucky in this position. Let's go ahead and put you on some basic linear progressions and start to expose you so that you can go out and ski and do what you want to do with your body. But what, what happens is people come out and they're so afraid. And then we're just going to do what bicep curls and pull-ups the rest of our life. Come on. That's my kind of workout. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's an, hey, look, curls, we just made a post about this. Curls are for elbow health. I make everyone, you work with me, you're going to get curls. Last question I want to ask you too, as we kind of bring things full circle, obviously in the book you talk about, you, you put people through tests for also like neck and shoulder pain. We've talked about the hip pain, lower back pain. We've talked about how to prevent injury with all that. We've also covered sleep. And while like, I know you want to stay away from specific prescriptions. One of the common things I'll hear from people is my neck hurts, my hips hurt. I must have slept wrong. Um, talk about like some do's and don'ts as far as sleep positioning. Well, I, I have to tell you a funny story about this, by the way, because, um, you know, Kelly, uh, we got an email from a guy who said that years ago he was laying there on his back snoring super loud and 
And his wife was like, hey, hey, you need to turn over. You need to turn over on the side. And in his half-asleep state, he said, no, I mean, Kelly Starrett told me I had to sleep on his back. And his wife was like, excuse my language, F Kelly Starrett, like you need to roll over your snoring. <laughs> he was sleeping on his back <laughs> because he didn't have sh enough shoulder range of motion to sleep comfortably on his side. That's the, the full story. Yeah. It shouldn't matter what position you sleep in. You should sleep in the position that's the most comfortable and restorative for you. And your body's going to turn you in the night. Do we think you probably should have a little support for your neck? Well, it depends how thick you are. I mean, Juliet and I do not sleep on the same pillow. I am 240 pounds and, you know, and have a neck fat rolls. And Juliet just needs like a feather underneath her neck, you know? And <laughs> the key here is, you know, what you're recognizing is that we have bodies that are not very tolerant. So Juliet and I figured out, for example, that we love to sleep on a much softer bed and with a little bit of elevation in the, in the head and the feet. That means it puts us into a little bit of flexion. And the reason kind of, the reason we love that position is that we're so extension driven, the way like you arching your back is extension. And all of our sports and all our activities are so extension driven that we found that when we got off a hard bed, which biased us towards extension and slept in a softer bed, which put us in a little bit of flexion, we slept better. Yeah. So ultimately what you're going to figure out is, Hey, how do I make my environment fit my body? The old maximum is hard bed, soft body, right? Or soft, soft body, hard bed, hard bed or hard body, soft bed. And what you'll see is, Hey, I have a history of herniations because of my job or whatever my sports were and sleeping on a really hard bed gave you a ton of extension and it made you feel better. But ultimately, you should sleep, be able to sleep on any surface. You'll have to adapt to a little bit. But the goal is how do I get comfortable and sort of less, I mean, you find your perfect pillow. I mean, there's a reason why they've been using buckwheat pillows for a thousand years because you can make that buckwheat pillow fit your body really quickly. Kelly and Juliet, I wanted to thank you both for coming on. This was awesome. I think my audience is going to get a lot of value out of this conversation. If they want to connect with you both, if they want to buy your books, um, they want to follow your YouTube channel, stuff like that. Where's the best place to do that? Best place is to go to the readystate.com and we're at the ready state on all the social channels. And I am at Juliet Starrett on Instagram. Builttomove.com has a companion video course for the book Built to Move. And I just want to remind everyone that, you know, one of the things that I think people forget is they just don't know where to start. We have the most incredible app it's basically my brain poured into this app. And if you just go into the app store and search Ready State, you can see that we've got an incredible self-assessment. goes a little bit further than the book. The book is creating vital signs, sort of minimums. And then in the rest of our language, we're like, why can't you do what every human being is supposed to do? You're going slow. You can go faster. Amazing. Well, I'll make sure to link, I will make sure to link all that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. We covered so much. Whether it was something we talked about as far as walking, sitting, injury prevention, hip pain, lower back pain, sleep, what to do at the gym. We covered so much. We got a lot done. Yeah. So mm -hmm. share your takeaway. Tag Kelly and Juliet. Tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.